We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am very excited to have Jessica Leahy on the program again. She was on episodes 161 and 162, and this is episode 401, so it's been a long time since we chatted with her last. If you want to go listen to those old episodes where we talked about The Gift of Failure, which is a phenomenal book that seems to have legs that just go on forever, and I continue to find new insights about The Gift of Failure, even many years after reading it for the first time. Jessica Leahy is a teacher, writer, and mom. Over 20 years, she's taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools. She writes about educating, education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, and is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure. She's also a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board and wrote the educational curriculum for the Amazon Kids show, The Stinky and Dirty Show. Jessica earned a BA in comparative literature from the University of Massachusetts and a JD with concentration in juvenile and education law from the University of North Carolina School of Law. 
She lives in Vermont with her husband and two sons. And her second book, which is what we're going to talk about today, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence, will be released very soon if it's not already out. So be sure to go pre-order that. That would be the wise thing to do. Jessica, welcome to Transformative Principle again. Thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. You have been an inspiration to me for years before I ever knew you, and it's just so exciting to meet someone and to talk with them after you've read their writing and feel like they've been inside your brain. And so I just want to say thank you for that. I'm excited to talk with you today. And we're going to talk about this book, The Addiction Inoculation. Can you tell us first why you wrote this book and what you what led up to it? I mean, it sounds like a very imposing title. So let's start there. You write one book, and I was fortunate enough that that book did really well, and and that's fantastic. And then everyone (laughs) freaks out about the sophomore slump. I mean, it's a real thing. I have my two best friends. Uh, We host a podcast together called the Hashtag Am Writing Podcast. And so we talk a lot there about the process. We've talked to, we're, you know, 250 episodes in or whatever, and you'd think we talked about every subject there is, and we know it inside and out. But when it comes to our own work and sort of the mysteries of where ideas come from, there's still a lot to be learned. So after Gift of Failure came out, I started to pressure myself to come up with the next thing. And I had a couple of reassuring conversations with other authors who said, look, the next thing will come when you're actively thinking about it. You're actively percolating. You're actively continuing to research. And for me, that's what's really important. I have to actively be reading new research and looking at new ideas and learning new things, or I just stagnate. And I think that's sort of the genesis of every project for me. And I submitted a bunch of proposals to my agent and she was, she's so great, but she was like, not quite. No, this, this isn't, this isn't it. And each time it was a little bit of a crush, but at the same time, I think also part of me was like, "Mm, I'm not there yet. This isn't it. I, and especially since when you write a book for me, I'm committing a certain amount of time to writing the proposal. And that takes at least six months to a year for me for addiction inoculation. It took a full year from figuring out what I was going to write about to finishing my proposal for my editor to sell the book. And then another two years on the writing and research. So you're going to be living with this project for a long time. And if you don't love it, you're in big trouble. So I had percolated on all these ideas and I was I was driving down to, an event, to a speaking event in Massachusetts and I had to pull off the side of the road and write down the notes because it was one of those shablam moments where, you know, all of the things I'd been thinking about came together in one big idea. And for me, that was, I knew I didn't want to write a memoir just about my own path to sobriety. I'm an alcoholic. I now have, by the time your listeners are listening to this, I'll have almost seven years of one day at a time, seven years of uh, sobriety. I, for five years, taught in a drug and alcohol um, rehabilitation program for adolescents. And there's tons of ideas to research there, just thinking about sort of how to be the best possible teacher for them, how to support them in their sobriety and in their path to recovery. And then on the other hand, I have two kids. And Everyone talks about the genetics of addiction, and I didn't know fully what that meant. I mean, I'm married to a a physician, and we do talk a lot about genetics, but I didn't fully understand what that meant. And so for me, as a mother 
as a you know former alcoholic and mother, I needed to understand the genetics. I needed to understand what I could and couldn't control about my own children and what would prevent them from having to deal with what I had to deal with. For my students, I needed to know what could have been done differently with them, what can still be done for them. And then, you know, there's all this great research coming out, like Nadine Burke Harris's book, The Deepest Well, on adverse childhood experiences. You know, I was familiar with the ACE study ahead of time, but she really connected a lot of dots with pediatrics. It was kind of a kablam moment. And I pulled off the road, texted my friends and said, I, I know what it is. And they both texted back and they said, oh my gosh, that's it. And then a year later, I had the, the proposal done. It really does take that long sometimes. So it, there's not, that's never a simple answer of where an idea comes from. It's, you know, it's, it's a bunch of different things coming together and keeping, keeping yourself open, I think, to ideas. What I find really fascinating is that you wrote The Gift of Failure many years ago, and that's been successful. You've been speaking on that. You've written for New York Times, Washington Post, and The Atlantic, and several other places. And so it's not like you've not been busy, not been doing things, but I personally kept waiting for The Gift of Failure sequel, you know, the sophomore work by you to come out, and and it took a while. And what I find so fascinating is this idea of the gift of failure, and then you overcoming your alcohol addiction. There's a lot of shame with being an alcoholic, and that could be considered that you're a failure. And so it almost seems like this is a natural path when you look backwards and see where you came from and what you experienced before. And so how have you dealt with that shame and the the failure associated with your own addiction? And how have you faced that challenge to now write about addiction and how to prevent it for, for the rest of us? The shame stuff, and it's so difficult because for me, the shame wasn't necessarily so much about my drinking. The shame was is that I knew based on what I had seen in my own relatives that that was the last thing in the world I ever wanted to become. And I avoided it for a really, really long time, basically by just not ingesting any substances at all. That's not true, not at all, but it was very rare that I drank and exceedingly rare that I got drunk. And I was always like the responsible one. I was the, you know, designated driver for every occasion. I was a resident assistant in college. I was a drug and alcohol peer counselor in college, um, at peer educator in college. So I was very much, I, fl- I clung to the abstinent end for a very long time and it really did sneak up on me. And so for me, as someone who I've always identified as sort of a person who is pretty quick to, to understand new concepts and I learn pretty fast. And so for me, the idea that I could be tricked, I could be, you know, I could be snookered into this situation where all of us, and the worst part about it for me was also that my, my husband is fully aware of his family history as well. And so we've always been really careful. Like we keep a really close eye on each other, but I was really sneaky and really good. And once it got its hooks into me, I worked pretty hard to defend my right to drink. And I think that was the thing that was most shameful for me. And then in telling the story, there's a lot of other angles to be considered. I mean, my parents are alive and well, and um, their stories are their stories to tell. And I I have a right to tell my story, but I do not have a right to tell their stories. And for all of the relatives that are still alive, I don't have a right to tell their stories. So 
I had to be very careful in writing this book, and it was extremely stressful to hand my parents the final draft of this book. So for me, it was a very loaded situation. And I also knew, it's funny, you said the thing about gift of failure too. That was the one thing I knew I didn't want to write. I knew I needed to keep challenging myself. I knew I needed to do something completely different. Like I didn't want my writing to career to just be about that one thing. While I love talking about that, I love going out and learning new things about it. I love ne- reading new research about it for myself in the same way that, you know, when I would teach a class for the same way for a number of semesters, I always had to shoot myself in the foot and completely redo, <laughs> get a new textbook, get a new book, get a new text, you know, whatever, change up what I'm teaching. Because that's what's so fun about teaching is changing up what you do and adapting as you learn more and more. I, so. I consumed every book I could find, every addiction memoir, every, you know, textbook, every bit of research I could find. So I'd read just about every addiction memoir out there. And I knew a straight memoir wasn't wanted, what I wanted to write, but I also knew that there was going to be a lot of it in there. So this is a really weird mashup. I think it's my favorite way to read nonfiction is heavy on the memoir with evidence-based research in it. So for me, this was the book I sort of wanted as a parent and a teacher and didn't exist out there. And so I wrote it, which is, I think, the coolest job in the whole world, frankly. <laughs> no kidding. That's pretty awesome. I I listened to a podcast with a pair of psychologists um, uh, a while ago, and I can't, I can't remember uh, what, what the podcast was or, or, um, or anything except for this one piece in there where they were talking mm-hmm. about addiction and they were talking about, uh, addiction to pornography or sexual addiction and thing like things like that. And they talked about it a little bit differently. And they said that when we call it an addiction, then we give up control of our own power in managing it and dealing with it. Because if it's an addiction, then, we can't help it. We're born with it. We can't overcome it. We just, we have it. So we just have to deal with it. I wish that I had better citations for you for that. I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it in, in, in preparing for this. No, it's fine. That's very much, that's very much in the conversation right now. And going with the word addiction in the title was a really difficult decision. What we're trying to do right now in substance abuse discussion is is shift away from like making the person the problem. So using the word like addict or junkie, all of those words are negative because it's saying this is the identity of the person. Talking about being a person with substance abuse disorder, that is similar to talking about a person with Down syndrome, a person with autism, as opposed to you are an autistic, you know, that kind of idea. And while it was really tempting to use that messaging in the title, it's really hard to come up, but, but partially you're, you know, it's not fully my decision. You know, this is, yes, it's my book, but I have sold this book and it's partially up to my publisher and my agent and me to come up with the right title that'll help people understand what the book is about. And that's how the word addiction ended up in the title, frankly. And I think, I think it is really important to move away from the labeling of the person as the identity. And at the same time, there's also a certain shifting that's happening and we're sort of in the middle of the shift right now and people understand what the word addiction means. Yeah. So for me personally, I've never had any alcoholic beverages 
partly because I know that my family history contains some addictive personalities, also because of religious reasons. And I just, I choose not to participate in that at all. And it's never for me been a, a temptation, if you will, or a, a lure to, to try to get me to get in there and get its grasps, its grasps, its hooks on me. So I know that my kids are probably have probably inherited some of these addictive personalities. So how do we turn the conversation to our kids and help them avoid whatever the addictive traits that we may have passed on to them so that they don't follow in our footsteps or the footsteps of our parents or whatever the case may be? Oh, there's so many parts to that question. So first of all, just since I mentioned genetics, I think it's worth mentioning that there isn't like an addiction gene. There isn't a gene that we can point to and say, oh, that's the gene that if we could just use CRISPR technology and knock that out, we would be all set. That's not how this works. Genetics controls so many things, including personality types. There's so many aspects of your likelihood of really enjoying a substance a lot. And what's really interesting is that personality does play a big part in it. When you read or hear enough stories in recovery or you read enough addiction memoirs, you see that there are certain people who come across a certain substance and they're like, oh, that's the substance for me. And for some people, it's alcohol. If you've read uh, Nick Sheff's, David Sheff's son, Nick, who was addicted primarily to crystal meth, to methamphetamine, that was just his favorite drug. That was the one that it was like, he had the perfect receptor. Here's the perfect plug and kablooey. This is the perfect drug for him. And people refer to that as like, you know, there was that thing I've been missing all my life. And so there's that personality aspect. Yes, there is some tendencies that go into whether or not it really plugs in in the right way for you. And then there's also this thing called epigenetics. And epigenetics is about how our genes are expressed. And epigenetics, which really means above the genes, has to do with what we were exposed to growing up. And that's why the ACE study, the adverse childhood experiences stuff is so important because when we it looks like, depending on which study you cite, it looks like genetics or your ancestry really gets at like at the lowest end, like 40%, but 60, 40 to 60% of your chances, you know, that's sort of 40 to 60% of the picture right there. But then trauma is a big, big part of this. And, you know, if you look at the kids that I taught in my rehab classroom, at any given time, there was, everyone had some major capital T trauma going on. Many of them had learning issues. So, and there are all sorts of other things that sort of come into the mix. So if we understand, I like to think of it as a, um, a scale, like the scales of justice scale, right? On one side, you have your risk factors. And the more risk factors you have, the more protections you're going to need to outweigh those risks. The great news is that we have so much evidence now on what does actually work, especially in schools for substance abuse prevention programs. And it is, you know, the way we used to do it when I was in school. I'm 50 and I graduated from high school in eight, 1988. So when I was in school, you know, it was DARE. And to be fair, uh, DARE has revamped what they do and it's different now. But the DARE that I went through didn't reduce um, substance use. It actually increased it. A kid who went through the DARE program was actually more likely to pick up a substance. So if we understand what really works, which, spoiler for teachers, is social emotional learning programs. I mean, they're SCL programs, right? So the good news is that if we look at what really works, it's from a very early age, 
teaching kids about maintaining their safety and maintaining safe eating habits and safe healthy habits and then starting to work in things like refusal skills like building kids confidence up around being able to say no to something but not in a just say no sort of situation there's a school of thought in sociology uh that has to do with inoculation theory which has to do with the more a kid feels like there is a way to reply in the negative to something. So if you were to, if a kid were to say to your kid, oh, come on, everyone's doing it. It's no big deal. But your kid has the evidence in them to say, well, it's, that's not true that everyone is doing it. I know the statistics because we talked about them at home. I know that only in, you know, for my age, it's only what, eight, nine, 10%, depending on the age, that that's really going to help them. So for me, it was like, these two things coming together, social emotional learning and substance abuse prevention. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the social emotional learning stuff that I've been writing about for years is the key to preventing so much of what we worry about kids sort of compounding risk factors. And as a as an educator, you know this, that there are certain things we have to watch for. We have to watch for early learning issues and we have to intervene early because early learning uh, issues are a big risk factor for substance abuse. Early aggression is a really big risk factor for substance use later in life. And all of the things that come out of early learning issues and early aggression, like, oh, social isolation, not feeling like you belong, all of those things kind of compound over time. So the best the best substance abuse prevention programs, and in the book I talk specifically about one called Botvin Light's Life Skills Training, um, seem to really work well. And substance abuse, as we now know, is preventable. But it takes a lot of work from the time kids are in preschool and, and even younger than that all the way through. We can't just drop kids into a substance abuse prevention class in middle school and say, here we go. Here's our great substance, comprehensive substance abuse prevention program. Just say no. Here's a, someone who's been in a 12-step program all their lives and, and we're good to go now. That's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. No, certainly not. It's funny. I've I've suggested many times on the podcast that we need to have life skills training for everybody, not just for kids who have disabilities and required as part of their IEP. I mean, um, my oldest daughter with Down syndrome has learned mm-hmm. things at school that I wish all my other kids would learn at school. Then we assume that they're just going to pick up a lot of these things. And we really need to focus on highlighting when these skills are needed and how they use them and, and not just assuming they'll just figure it out. So what, what about things like gateway drugs or activities like vaping or marijuana as a gateway drug to, to other things and cigarettes and tobacco are as well? How do we manage those kinds of things? Do we need to prevent right. them from, from all kids from using all of that stuff? Or do we need to be, be more judicious in how we teach about that? Is, is meth as bad as marijuana as bad as vaping? That's a really, really great question. And first, you should know that the term gateway drug, that is a a term that really can set off some people because there has been research on both sides of like, is there really a gateway drug thing? But we do know there's a general pattern for how kids tend to pick things up. And it does differ, actually, by background and gender sometimes. Generally speaking, what we do know about vaping is that kids who vape, whether that's um, they're vaping nicotine, they're vaping flavors or THC, obviously, 
are much more likely to pick up a conventional cigarette uh, after they have been vaping. We do know that. So the good news is, and by the way, I do want to leave your listeners with some really good news. If you look at trends and leaving, uh, let's set COVID aside just for a moment, because that is a little separate topic. Overall, the trends around kids and illicit drug use are going down. They're just going down and it's fantastic. Alcohol use, all that stuff. Vaping is the exception to that. Um, And whether that's nicotine flavors, THC, you know, if I were an adult and I were to say, you know, what I prefer an adult is vaping nicotine versus uh, smoking an actual cigarette, I would say rah, rah for vaping because you're not getting a lot of the chemicals. And then the whole kids getting this respiratory failure um, that was happening, what, at this point, I guess it's been about two years ago. That's sort of a separate topic as well. Um, So it turns out that for most kids, the trajectory goes smoking of some sort, maybe, maybe not, alcohol, and then you move. And if you continue to use those and accelerate those, and that's a big if, because lots and lots of kids can have a drink here and there and be okay. And big asterisks after that. But if the kids are going to progress, then it does tend to, you know, not many kids jump straight into shooting heroin. That's just not how it works. For most people that go on to use heroin in some form, there was opiate use that came out of their parents' medicine cabinet um, ahead, you know, earlier. And when I say there's a big asterisk about kiss, you know, the fact that not all kids are going to go on to become addicts just because they use. John Cat Educational supports high quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research based, practical and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer. A title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval. One book that says, Stop Talking and Start Doing with Regard to Teacher Well-Being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. I created a new podcast with my friend Frederick Lane called Cybertraps. We are exploring the myriad risks and adverse consequences that can arise from the use and misuse of digital devices and electronic communication tools. Please subscribe to the Cybertraps podcast, and if you like it, please give us a rating. Here's an excerpt from an interview with Eric Stevens on the value of identity and being ethical in our work with underserved populations. If I approach my research with the intention of helping a group of people but I am using the data that they themselves have created and have been replicated by their, their own personal identity, replicated over and over and over and over. My research is already flawed ethically. Some people, that's not a big thing. For me, it was problematic because I didn't want to feel 
like I was exploiting people, but I still wanted to help. What I ended up creating was I wanted to understand the prison system at the language level across time um, and across space in the United States. Um, Basically, I wanted to understand if we send a person to prison, we're sending them to a correctional facility um, with correctional officers and we give them handbooks to say, hey, this is what you should be doing. What I wanted to answer was at the language level with the technical documents that we hand to um, an inmate, what are we correcting them to? To what standard are we asking them to be at the language level? Check out more from this interview at cybertraps.com slash seven. Many years ago, I read The Gift of Failure by Jessica Leahy. I interviewed her several years ago also, and I'm interviewing her again today. And it's amazing to me to watch people grow. I love watching principles grow in the mastermind that I run. I'd love to see you in there as well and help you grow to be the best version of yourself possible. Please join us. Go to jethrojones.com slash mastermind. That's jethrojones.com slash mastermind. But here's the big problem. As many of us know who have read anything about adolescent brain development, we used to think that kids' brains were done developing at age 10 because they were the same size as an adult brain. And of course, any educator, anyone who spent any time around a 10-year-old knows their brain is not done, right? So, and what we do know is that there's two phases of incredible brain growth, what we call great plasticity or brain development. And that's from like zero to two, zero to four, and then during the adolescent years. And the problem, it's great. It's fantastic. We're getting new synapses and and myelination is happening in the brain and the frontal lobe is starting, just starting to go online. But the problem is, is that the brain, the adolescent brain is uniquely vulnerable to those substances during that period. In fact, if you look at the research on marijuana use, there's just not a lot of problems in the adult brain unless you're into really heavy use. There are some, but not a ton of problems. But if you look at what marijuana does to the adolescent brain, it's a very different picture. messes with memory retention because it interferes specifically with the hippocampus. And, you know, there's all kinds of things. So if we can keep, here's the deal. If we can keep kids away from all drugs and alcohol until the early 20s, we can mostly eliminate substance abuse during their lifetime. The problem is, is that so many adults, so many parents have been sucked in by the whole, if I just teach my kid about moderation, if I just let them have a sip of wine here and there, you know, like the French do, or like the Italians do, like the Europeans do, then it'll be all great. And I can teach my kid about moderation and they won't go off to college and freak out and drink everything in sight. That is a myth. It does not work work. Um, the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics um, has talked about this in recent press releases that, you know, this is a big deal that mo- teaching kids about moderation does not work. What does work is, is consistent messaging to kids that no, we do not take drugs or alcohol until we are of legal age, 21 or over. And I know that sounds crazy because permissiveness around drugs and alcohol, especially around alcohol with parents, has 
It's like, oh, that's just what kids do. Well, that's just what kids do because that's what we say. That's just what kids do. And it also messes with the messaging for kids. Like if kids understand that everyone's doing it is actually false, they would be less likely to imbibe younger than 21. So there are even state laws that get in the way of this messaging because in some states, you know, there are exceptions made for religious groups and that's great and fine. But then parents who... um want to take exception with the laws can point to that exception and say, well, yes, I bought the keg for my kids, but look, there's an exception in our state laws for kids who are under the age of 21, but with parents at home. So, um, you know, consistent messaging that you can't use drugs or alcohol until you're of age can really significantly reduce the fa- the chances of a kid becoming addicted during their lifetime because 90% of people who have a substance abuse problem during their adult life started before the age of 18. So, yeah. There's a, sorry the, for the long answer, but there's a lot to unpack in that question. <laughs> yeah, I kind of expected a long answer and that's totally fine. I think the the place where I want to dig in next is what do we do if our kids have started yeah. abusing alcohol or drugs and there's got to be some hope. We can't just give up and say, oh, you know what, now they're going to be an alcoholic and there's not much we can do. So so what are the steps we need to take um, to help them if they've already started going down that path? Well, there's two issues at hand. Like it started, if you know that your kids have tried or are using substances, and especially for my family, like my conversation with kids is, with my kids, is less Yes, we do talk about the fact that no, there's no using drugs and alcohol until you're 21. And at this point now, I have a 22-year-old and I have a 17-year-old. And, you know, that 22-year-old is an adult. He can make his own decisions. But because I am an alcoholic, I would be leaving a big part of the picture out if I wasn't having frequent conversations with them about what it feels like, what it can look like when having a drink every once in a while turns into really looking forward to Friday, which turns into Thursday, or um, what binge drinking looks like and why that's so dangerous, especially for young brains. And as I said, just because the legal age is 21, but at the same time, our frontal lobes aren't finished developing until the mid to sort of, let's say 25, just for fun. Um, That's sort of the midpoint that people can agree on. So talking with my, even my 22-year-old on a fairly regular basis about the fact that what does it feel like when all of a sudden your brain kind of goes, oh, that's the substance for me? Or, you know, are you smoking so much that you're awake and baker? What does it look like? How much do you think your friends are drinking? And by the way, just because you think that's how much you think your friends are drinking, that may not necessarily be true. There's great research out of Princeton University that shows that kids, especially kids, tend to overestimate how much other people, how much substances mean to other people. So for example, if you were to ask your kid, how much do you think your college roommate drinks? The kid will most, in most likelihood, overestimate that amount. It's just a bias that we tend to have. Um, At Princeton, they said, how much do you think everyone else cares about the fact that they were putting a keg ban into place? And a lot of people were like, well, I don't care so much, but everyone else really, really cares. And it turns out that that bias plays a part in how much we actually drink. In boys, it looks like they will shift their consumption, raise their consumption to meet that expectation of how much their friends or especially team captains or frat presidents are drinking. 
Whereas girls, if they perceive that other people are using more than they care to use themselves, they will start to socially isolate. And that's a problem too. Helping kids understand that their perception of how much substances mean to other people their age may be biased and may not be rooted in any sort of evidence, which is why in the book, I consistently over and over and over again, come back to the actual numbers about how much we know kids are actually drinking. And we can look at every once a year, a report comes out having to do with attitudes around substance use and what kids think about substance use. And you can point to those numbers and say, and I I talk about those a lot in the book and say, you know, what's interesting is you think that 60% of the kids in your class have had a drink by this given age, let's say 15. The research is really clear. It shows that the number is far lower than that. Isn't that interesting to you? And why do you think that you believe it's more than that? All of that messaging is really important because it helps with their refusal skills and it helps them adjust their sense of reality to what's actually happening as opposed to what their perceived uh, their perception is. And I imagine that people perceive other people do more of it is because they think they're probably just not telling the truth on those surveys and those reports and things like that. I, I think it's just that other people tend to overblow the perception of how much, especially alcohol means in college. And if you think about what that ends up meaning in practice is that a college is going to be less likely to organize sober events or, you know, um, non-alcoholic events because the person organizing the event would be like, oh, but people aren't, no one's going to come because people care a lot about drinking. When in reality, the number is actually lower than you think. So our perception is actually driving our practice, if you think about it that way. If we're overestimating the number of people who care about having drugs and alcohol at an event, then we're just not going to provide events that don't have drugs and alcohol there, whereas it matters less than we think it does. And if we could get that messaging to the right people, if we could get that messaging to the people we know actually influence um, behavior, which is, like I said, sports team captains, frat presidents, dorm presidents, that kind of thing. If we can have those kids understanding what the real numbers are and that their consumption is what other people are looking for to looking to to drive their consumption. That's why I think I'm hoping I get to speak with a lot of coaches and, you know, and people involved in sports around this because, you know, sports really do drive a lot of drinking culture and the higher the contact sport, uh, lacrosse, hockey, soccer and wrestling are the four highest uh, consumption, alcohol consumption sports on college campuses. And if we could get at the team captains for those sports and help them understand how their behavior shapes their teammates' use, then I think that could be a really powerful way in. Yeah, I I think so too. So let's go back to um, other things we can do to help our kids Mm -hmm. if they've already started going down that path. So one thing that we can do is work with our school sports teams and their captains and and make sure that we're talking with them about this openly and saying what's really going on what what are some other things we can do if our if our kids have already started using drugs and alcohol so i want to make one thing very very clear and that's that my book the addiction inoculation is about prevention and it is not about treatment and i am not an expert in treatment i will tell you that it is very very difficult to find good adolescent treatment programs in this country right now, mainly because for a bunch of reasons, and this is a hotly contested, very, there are landmines all over this conversation because most 
um, at, including the adolescent treatment program that I worked with, um, was very much rooted in um, abstinence-only recovery. And for some people that, and for me, that was really important. Abstinence-only recovery was the way to go for me. Having it off the table as an option was fantastic. For kids, recovery doesn't look the same as it does in adults. Um, I recommend that everyone go watch. There was an MTV documentary series called um, 16 and Recovering, and they spent a year at the North Shore Recovery High School in Massachusetts, in Revere, I think it was Revere, in North Shore of Massachusetts, where um, the principal of that school makes it really clear that for kids, relapse is very much a part of how recovery works for them, mainly because of the way their brains work. They're just different from adult brains and, you know, the social pressures and all those other things um, and the way they work in the presence of other kids and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I will say that for kids who are using, for anyone who's using opiates, I would ask people who are looking for help to open their minds to the fact that the evidence shows that medication-assisted uh, treatment is uh, best practice, um, medical best, best practice, meaning that um, some places are now starting to understand that you can use medications like Suboxone and other medications to help someone work toward recovery. And the way we talk about it is that you can't recover if you're dead. And for a lot of people who are on opiates, um, and especially if they're mixing opiates and benzodiazepines like uh, or, and alcohol, um, it's a really quick path to death. And so I think having a bit of more of an open mind about how we keep kids alive long enough to get them well um, is going to be a really part, important part of moving forward. But obviously, finding help which during COVID, again, you know, so often we have to set COVID aside and say, this is a really difficult time to get kids help because often it's the social supports that kids need, other kids also going through recovery that they really, really need, or the, you know, being in the same room with the therapist they can talk to. And that's really hard to come by right now. But definitely talking to that, making sure the counselor at school knows that it's an issue, making sure that they're, um, that you have access to a good therapist for the kid to talk to. Um, uh, school counselors are really instrumental right now in helping bridge the gap between school and uh, whatever is out there in the community that can provide help for kids. And right now, nonprofits are, you know, community organizations, nonprofits are just overwhelmed with the number of kids who are needing help for anxiety, depression, and all of these. Uh, we know that anxiety and depression are big risk factors for substance abuse. So, Seeing it early, noticing the depression and the anxiety, maybe even before you notice the substance use, because the reason kids use substances is to, to cope with whatever else they're feeling, whether that's that like they're feeling less than or like they can't handle everything or they're feeling they don't want to deal with trauma that they've faced all of those things, uh, noticing those things, dealing with those things. If your kid has experienced trauma, making sure that they're getting treatment for that, um, all of that comes before even talking about substance abuse recovery, and but it's an instrumental part of substance abuse recovery as well. Yeah. And I want to go back to this idea that you mentioned about it's difficult to get treatment options. And as a mostly middle school principal for most of my career, my biggest challenge was that treatment programs did not take kids who were as young as what we were experiencing in our middle school. And so 
you know, six to eighth graders, kids who are as young as 10 or 11 are, are already mm-hmm. starting to, to use and abuse. And it's tragic because mm-hmm. to get them support to help them overcome it is, is very, very difficult because almost every place says right. you got to be at least 15 or 16 to come here. And especially when I was right. in Alaska, it was so hard and they're very open to helping younger kids because they know it exists. But but it's also, right. you know, it, it's tough to put those kids in an environment someplace outside of the home when they're that young. The trend right now tends to be towards community-based, like keeping kids in the community as opposed to sending them off somewhere. And, you know, when we talk about sending them off somewhere, I would I would urge parents to be really careful. I mean, parents need to be careful no matter what. Make sure they're, you know, doing their best to, to check the place out. If you're going to send your kid off, especially to something like a wilderness program or some sort of boarding program, I would encourage extra diligence. Um, there's a lot that's been written. Please Google it and read it, especially the work by Maya Salovitz, um, who has written an entire book about it. These programs are mostly evolving to incorporate more evidence-based treatments, but not all of them. So just be really, really careful. Um, In the state of Vermont, where I taught in an inpatient facility, I lost my job there because we just didn't have as many kids being sent for inpatient recovery. And and that's a double-edged sword because while it's often great to keep them with their parents and keep them in a situation in which they have support for their recovery, often it's the very fact that they are home in an unsafe environment or in an in, in an environment where all of their friends are using that can be part of the problem. So currently in New Hampshire, for example, since the adolescent wing where I worked was used, was closed down to adolescents uh, That left one program, Brattleboro Retreat, down in southern Vermont, but that's a dual diagnosis program for kids who have pre-existing mental health issues, which I will leave it open to argue that kids who use substances that young don't already have a pre-existing mental health issue. But Brattleboro Retreat's cutting back. Currently in Vermont, there aren't really great options for sending your kids somewhere. Um, There are nationally, but just not in our state at the moment. And then I think that's unfortunate um, for kids. But for parents who are listening and they're desperately searching for treatment for their kid, I empathize with you because it's a really difficult thing to find right now. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah. Well, and the other challenge is that, as you alluded to, kids who are using in their home environment or around their family, Mm -hmm. obviously are not getting all of the support that they need to not use in the first place. And so having them stay there, I'm reminded of a, of a story of a a 12 year old girl that I worked with who um, her parents were the trigger for her situation. This girl was basically by staying home, she was in the constant situation where she felt like, as you mentioned, that she needs to cope. She needed to cope with her challenges at home and so inpatient treatment would have been the best thing for her. But then when she came out of inpatient treatment, she'd go right back into that situation. If the parents weren't doing the work themselves at the same time as her, then it would have been really challenging for her to have any hope of, of overcoming that. And so we really focused on doing a whole family approach and not just, you know, working on the, on the child who had the problem because it was bigger than that. 
the better the homeschool relationship, the better the learning. There's research that shows that kids who are in juvenile detention facilities because they've committed crimes, the more the family is involved in uh, that person's rehabilitation, the more likely they are to stay to stay out of jail. So you're absolutely 100% right. But also, I can't tell you the number of times that I've taught kids who where the parents were part of the problem, where the parents are using substances as well. That's why recovery high schools, and actually there is a network of recovery high schools. Um, some places call them sober high schools, but really they're about recovery. Um, there's a National Association of Recovery High Schools, and I would encourage parents to look for that. There's a fantastic one in Austin, affiliated with the University of Texas at Austin. And most of them, I'm not 100%, 100% sure that all of them, but most of them are not boarding facilities. So you have to live locally to that school in order to be able to attend. But these are schools. And again, I can't recommend enough 16 and in recovery on MTV. You can watch and stream it for free. Those people understand that for most of these kids, traditional education hasn't really served them well. And many of them are still trying to stay in recovery. And given that relapse is so much a part of uh, an adolescent uh, recovery picture, it's really important to have the support you need that understand how adolescent recovery works um, around you. And so, you know, I've put this out in the universe because I'm hoping it'll manifest. But my ultimate dream, my my ultimate dream is to start a recovery high school near my home. And that's something that is out there as something that I would really, really like to do. And I'm doing the research these days to see how that's going to be possible. Because I think the more we understand that we have to keep kids alive in order to get them sober, the the more kids we're going to save. Yeah, I, I think that that's great. This has been a great conversation. I feel like we could just keep talking, but I do want to want to close it out. And we've talked a lot about a lot of things all through this. And so my last question mm-hmm. is, what advice would you give to a principal of something they could do as an action item this week to make mm-hmm. an impact in this arena? Okay, so evaluate your substance abuse prevention program. What are you using in your school and is it evidence-based? I would recommend that you go to, if you Google blueprints and substance abuse prevention, blueprints is an organization out of the University of Colorado at Boulder that evaluates all kinds of treatment programs, including like helping kids through divorce and helping kids through, you know, other tragedies and other things that happen in their lives. But one of the categories is substance abuse prevention. Spoiler alert, all these programs help for all these things. I mean, there are programs that focus specifically on various issues, but again, we're talking about really good comprehensive SEL programs. So go to Blueprints, make sure that your program is up to snuff because It is unbelievable to me how many schools are using programs that have no evidence behind them. They just sound like a good idea. So please go do your research about the program you are using. And if you're starting in middle school, you are starting too late. You are starting far too late and you need to be moving things back. Make sure that you have enough school counselors and, you know, go look at the Association of School Counselors of America, ASCA, ASCA, ASCA. Find out how many school counselors you are supposed to have for the number of students that you have in your school. And school nurses, the school nurses are the other wonderful resource for kids. You know, I taught for six years in a school that had no school counselor. And guess who becomes the school counselor? 
hello, I do. I'm not qualified to be a school counselor and I shouldn't be put in that position because it is, there tends to be a conflict of interest um, and it puts a teacher in a really bad position. Make sure you have school counselors, make sure you have a school nurse, make sure you are using a substance abuse prevention program that is actually um, evidence-based, backed by actual evidence and not just evidence published by the program itself. And that's the magic of blueprints is that they look at in order to be a gold star program, you have to be a program that has been evaluated by evidence from outside your own program that you actually, it's sort of like, you know, you don't want a drug company being the only place that's doing the research on their own drugs, right? You want peer reviewed, that kind of thing. So those are my recommendations. Also earlier we were talking about you know, where can a parent turn if they're worried? There are a bunch of books I love and I'm, I'll be, I'm going to be putting together a bibliography and I'll make that available for your listeners. But one of my favorite books is called Recovering My Kid, Parenting Young Adults in Treatment and Beyond. And it's by Joseph Lee, MD. And he happens to run the adolescent recovery program at Betty Ford Hazelden in uh, Minnesota. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. This has been awesome again. Um, all the links to all the resources that she shared and that bibliography will be at jethrojones.com slash podcast slash episode 401. So make sure that you check that out. And may, if you haven't pre-ordered the book, make sure you do because it, it's going to be a great read wherever you're at in this journey yourself. Thank you. There's a whole chapter there for educators. Um, and, you know, that was really important to me. Is we, have, we as educators have such a huge part in preventing substance abuse. Um, even though sometimes it feels like we don't, we really do play a huge role in it. And I, it was really important to me that there was a good chapter in there for educators. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash principle. Hey, middle school principals, what if I told you that all your teachers had to do to teach your students really valuable social and emotional competencies was just press play? In Control SEL is a fully automated video curriculum that teachers and students absolutely love. And that's because it's easy, and it looks just like a Netflix or a YouTube show. So all you have to do to hear about how it can completely transform your school is schedule your call. Tell us Jethro sent you and you'll get 20% off if you feel like it's a good fit. So go now to www.incontrolsel.com slash strategy call to schedule your call today. The link will be in the show notes. Do you want to simplify your school's technology? 
save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.